Well, good morning, guys. Uh, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is JT Meyer. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, and I am really excited for this morning. This is one of our, we do a weekly ordination service. Um, no, this is our, this is our first ordination service that we have had as a church. And I'm really, really excited about this. I've been dreaming about this day since before this church existed. Um, but before we get into all that, I have something I felt like the Lord wanted me to share with you guys. Um, I had a mentor uh, one time tell me that every preacher kind of, no matter what they're preaching about, no matter what like text in the Bible they're looking at, they kind of have like three or four sermons that they kind of fall back on. Like they have those things that's like deep inside their bones that they feel really excited to talk about. And I've been told like, I like to talk about justice and like the love of God and how like his love is never failing and that he's here for you and all that stuff. But today we are going to be talking about discipleship and uh, more specifically the cost of discipleship. You know, after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, he gathered his followers together. And one of the last things he said to him was this in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. This is kind of like the job description of a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, this is why I am here. This is what I am calling you to do if you are a follower, is to go and make disciples. I find this really interesting because I, I think in the 21st century evangelical uh, American church, we have lost sight of this. This is known as the Great Commission. Jesus says, this is my mission, and I am inviting you to be a part of my mission. That's why we call it the co-mission. This is the great commission. This is the job description. He's not saying go and be the moral police of society. Go and make sure people aren't sinning. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say go and get people to say a prayer. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say go get people to come to your church. He doesn't say that. He says go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so what does a disciple even mean? What is a disciple? A disciple is a word that means student, but it really means so much more than just a student. A disciple, especially in first century Israel, would be one who found a rabbi and modeled their life after that rabbi. They would leave all that they had and say, I'm going to follow you. In fact, there were like all these different steps of discipleship. The first step, the, the disciple wasn't even allowed to speak. The disciple just had to sit in the back and watch. And each step, there were more and more costs that were associated with it. And at the end of the, the, um, you know, the, the process, it was less about what does this rabbi teach, and it was them trying to embody 
their rabbi. Them trying to follow, to, to make their life look like their rabbi's life. And so Jesus was inviting disciples saying, would you come and follow me and model your life after me? Would you come and not just be my student, but would you come and, and be my disciple? And it's very clear that in the life of Jesus, this is what he was calling people to do. He would, he would stand at the Sea of Galilee and call people to, you know, leave your life of fishing and come follow me. Leave your life of tax collecting and come follow me. There was a cost that Jesus was inviting people into to come and be one of his disciples, to be part of his mission. In fact, I think the very, uh, the most famous sermon of all time is this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and our church went through it. And at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a clear distinction between the crowd and a disciple. He, he, he separates the disciples from the crowd. He says, I want to teach you guys something. There is a cost to discipleship. Now hear me. The affection and the, 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 the kindness and, the, and salvation and the love of God costs us nothing. It is a free gift that is poured out on everybody. For God so loved the world. His love is free. You can't earn that. But saying yes to following Saying yes to modeling your life after him, that has a cost. Jesus told his disciples this. Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give and return for his soul? Jesus is saying, following me has a cost. Following me has a cost. Again, not salvation, not his love, but living like him has a cost. Because think about it. His life cost him everything. The life that he demonstrated for us cost him everything. And if so, if we want to live like him, it will cost us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about this called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he says this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is a bummer, you guys. You guys came here, and you're like, okay. Maybe, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time. You're like, this is why I don't go to church. Church is a bummer. But, but listen, here's why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this for two reasons. One, um, if you have heard a message of Christianity that said, come to Jesus, and he gets rid of your problems. He, you're going to be wealthy. You're going to be happy. You're not going to get sick anymore. It's going to be amazing. He's going to give you the spouse that you're looking for. Everything is going to be great. Then you were told a lie. And that is a false gospel. 
Following Jesus has a cost. And I'm sorry to tell you that that other message isn't true. There is a cost. And I think that's so why so many people, I know my, my dad was a pastor for like a million years. He just retired. And he was asking me, why do you think so many young people are leaving the church? And I said, for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is because they've been told a version of Christianity that's not true. They've been told that, you know, all these things are important, yet like Christians are more homophobic or more racist or more, you know, whatever than everybody else. And they've been told when you become a Christian, things get really good. And then when they hit a wall and things get hard, they say, well, this is not what I signed up for. This doesn't seem true. Being a disciple costs us. I, I know John Wimber, who's been one of my heroes, he said this. He said, remember the economy of the kingdom is simple. Every time we cross a new threshold, it costs us everything we now have. Every new step may cost us all the reputation and security we've accumulated up to that point. It costs us our life. And I say this not to you know, brag or anything, but I know when, when God called me to plant this church up in Cleveland, there was a major cost. And if I could look back, I'd say, JT, don't do it. <laughs> That's only half true. But planting a church during the pandemic is a bad idea. And if you are thinking about planting a church, don't do it when a pandemic is going on. It's, it's really hard. But I know coming up here cost me a job. It cost me financial security. It cost my family. We left our friends. We left our family. We left, you know, job security and financial security and all of the comforts to come up here because God said, JT, do you want to be part of my mission? And I could tell you a number of stories in my life where that was true. And the reality is, is the cost for me has been high, but the reward has been sweet. Following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus can be difficult, but it is the most filling, fulfilling, terrifying, you know, peace that transcends understanding. It is the most beautiful thing that I could give my life to, and I think it's the most beautiful thing that you could give your life to. I don't know about you, but I think the American view of Christianity seems so boring and broken. Come to Jesus and be comfortable, and let's keep those people out so we can just be together and be real, real comfy. But what sounds appealing to me is saying yes to Jesus in this mission of restoring the world back to him. Saying, oh, I love this world. Oh, I love people. And I have dreams for them, and I want them to know me. Would you be a part of my kingdom? Would you join me in my mission? Would you be a disciple? And it might cost you, but it is thrilling and you, you may lose things, but you will never lose me. I will be with you always. Would you lift me up so that the world 
may be saved. And so for you today, I'm not sure what Jesus may be asking you. I'm not sure what the cost may be for you. Maybe it's free time. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's finances. Or maybe he's asking you to lay down certain behaviors. I don't know. But this morning, I want to invite you in saying yes to the greatest adventure, to the greatest story, being part of God's kingdom of restoration, of reconciliation, and to count the cost, to understand the cost, and say, though the cost may be great, how could I say no? I say yes to you, Jesus. And so the other reason I wanted to talk to you guys about the cost of discipleship this morning is that I am not sure if I have met anyone who embodied this more than the Berkeys. I've watched Nate and Megan <laughs> countlessly open up their homes to people. Nate standing by the, the grill cooking burgers and setting up chairs and all this stuff no matter what's going on in their life. Maybe they just want a night to themselves. They open up their homes to us. I've watched them say yes to fostering, even though there is a great cost to that. It's not easy. They got a lot of stuff going on, but yet they say, would you, would you send these beautiful kids to our home that we could be parents to them? I've seen them yes to preaching, during weeks where they have crazy things going on, where it feels like worlds are falling apart, and they say, I'm going to preach. God has given me something to share with our community. I've watched them have incredibly uh, difficult situations to step into financial uncertainty, to be willing to walk away from jobs, to follow the will of God. I've watched them step into the unknown. I've watched them wrestle with uncertainty, wrestle with difficult issues, wrestle with each other in these difficult issues. Things that make them feel uncomfortable and confused and say, yes, Jesus, I accept the cost. I watch them be vulnerable and authentic in front of us, in front of strangers. And, and there, listen, there are countless things. I'm sure if we went around the room, many of us could tell stories of them saying yes to the cost. But I want to also say there are things that none of us will ever see. But Jesus sees it, and he says, I see what you've done. And, and, and he's saying, I'm so proud of you too this morning. They are far from perfect, but I believe they understand the cost of discipleship. And that's one of the dozen reasons why I feel so confident and comfortable in our decision as a church to ordain them this morning. Um, so this morning, uh, I asked if they would share with us. Can you guys come up? 
Woohoo. Um, before they share, I want to tell you guys a little story. So when we were like, we're still a, a pretty new young church, but like one of the very first weeks that we were around, Nate walked in to visit. And um, when you're a church this size, if you're a pastor, you immediately see person new, talk to that person. Um, and I began to talk to Nate and realized, oh, he's in ministry and he seems like he's got his, you know, a good head on his shoulders, and I was like, hey, let's grab some coffee and talk, and so we, we went and got coffee, and it seemed like we were on the same page as far as vision for what church should look like, and our theology seemed, you know, really, really similar, and shared a lot of opinions, and I was like, oh, Lord, would you please let these people stick? They are pretty awesome. And so, like, the next week, Megan and the, the, the kids came, and I was like, oh, and they're awesome, too. And their daughters are the same age as my daughter, and this could be really, really wonderful. So I was like, hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner? Bring your girls over because your girls and, and my daughter seem to kind of like each other, and you guys are awesome, and I hope that you guys stay at our church. And So they come over to our house, and we order some pizza. We're new to Cleveland. We don't know stuff. So we order some pizza, and I think, you know, me and Nate can put it down. We're big guys. We're going to put it down. So we order, like, I order, like, these, uh, I think for the family, I think we order, like, four big pizzas. And the pizza gets there, and it's four personal-sized pizzas. <laughs> like, personal-sized pizzas that I could handle on my own. So, like, they come in, and I'm like, oh, no, like, they're not going to stick around. And so, like, me and Lara, my wife, are scrambling, like, putting frozen pizzas in the oven and being like, I think we have some salad and maybe some lunch meat or something, and maybe we can make a sandwich. But they were so generous, and they stuck around, which is another one of the reasons why I want to ordain them this morning, because I would have been gone. But, you know, that moment, I just realized, oh, these are the people these are the type of people I want to do ministry with. And so I am so thrilled and excited for you guys to be here to share uh, your heart with us this morning of, of, you know, what is God calling you to uh, share with us as you step into this new role as pastors of Restoration Heights? So uh, they're going to share with us a little bit this morning. Thanks, JT. Also, thanks for that lead-in where I was crying in my seat and then you invited me up. I love it. <laughs> love it. Um, you know, I'm really excited to be here this morning. Uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about, though, I've been in ministry with Megan for 13 years. Um, and she has been a pastor for all 13 of those. Um, but uh, this morning we had to make it official and put a name on it, and she gets honored in a way that she deserves and has for 13 years. Um, so that's really important to me. Um, that's something that has been just really, yeah, really important for a really long time. Um, and so, sorry, don't want to make you cry before you talk to crap. Uh, but I just, yeah, it's, Megan has done everything and more that I have done, and um, I've had the privilege of standing up on a lot of stages and being called Pastor Nate at different spaces, and she's Pastor Megan just as much as I am Pastor Nate. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited. Um, but that being said, uh, I was told I have five to ten minutes. So, 
You guys heard me last week, and you can decide if you think I can actually hold to that. But uh, one of the things that I think about when I think about our church um, is I think about Acts 4. And I promise you I'm not going to go to like four different parts of the Bible like we did last week. If you were here last week, we did like an Old Testament passage, a parable. Uh, We went back to Genesis 15, and then we went all the way to James, and I think I had everyone panicked. I'm going to stay one place. Um, But in Acts 4, uh, Peter and John are brought in front of the Sanhedrin, and they basically are being accused of being people who aren't following the rules. Hey, you guys are disruptive. There's a way that you should do this, uh, and you're not doing it the right way. And Peter and John uh, look at the Sanhedrin, and they say, but for us we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. And I think about the church and body of people who I want to be a part of, and I want that to be so true. That for us, we're not going to stop talking about what we've seen Jesus do. Uh, That Peter and John knew when they stepped into the Sanhedrin that they were disrupting systems, they were disrupting ways of being, And they were looking at people who are drawing hard lines in the sand, and they were saying, no, that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to build a church that says, we will fight for you. To build a church that can't stop talking about Jesus is to build a church that is a church that advocates, a church that cares, a church that is built on the goodness of Jesus. And when we ask people to know and follow that Jesus, we're not asking them to just fall down, prostrate, and say how unworthy they are. What we want people to know is God has made a way for you to know him. And there are no barriers to that invitation. And so I pray that we're a church of disruptors, that we disrupt systems and ways of thinking that are so contrary to the ways of Jesus. That for us, we can't stop talking about what we've seen Jesus do. And that only happens when a body of people, there are so many children walking in right now. Awesome. (laughs) Sorry, they were all just like waving in the back. And I'm like, we can't stop talking about Jesus. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) Hi, guys. Um, And so just my prayer And the vision that I want to bring to our space is that we're a group of disruptive people, but we're disruptive with God's love. That where people are trying to draw hard and fast lines, that we're saying, no, there's a place for you here. Jesus cares for you deeply. Come know him, love him, and experience his goodness. That we would actually be a church that loves that, that does justice, that loves mercy, and that walks with God. And I believe that when we're a church that does that, holy smokes, like I think people are going to say, man, there's something irresistible about this Jesus. Because we're not the Sanhedrin, and we don't get to be, and God never made us that. But we get to be disciples of Jesus, which means we take up Jesus' ways. We do what Jesus has done, and we create space for people to know and follow him. 
And there are a lot of discussions about how that might look and how that might flesh out and what that looks like for the life of the believer. But what I want every person to know, no matter who they come or what walk of life that they might be in, that Jesus is saying, the door is open, come grab a seat and follow me. There's not a barrier to you being here. And when we talked about renaming the church Restoration Heights, it was resounding absolutely because we want to see and be agents of restoration in the place where we live that this community might experience us talking about Jesus and say, oh my gosh, they can't stop talking about what they've seen and heard. I have to know who this Jesus is. And so I'm excited for what this means. I'm excited for the vision uh, that we get to share together, uh, to live in the heights and be Jesus's presence to people in the heights, that we get to offer people not lines drawn in the sand, but an open seat and an open door that says you're welcome here, you're known, you're loved, and there's space for you. Uh, And so that is what I hope and dream for us. He didn't write a single thing down, and I knew I was going to be annoyed. I knew it. I was, like, furiously writing notes, and Nate's like, oh, I knew it. Um, <clears throat> I went a completely different way. Shocking, if you know Nate and I, that we didn't follow directions in the same way. Um, I have been in church my whole life. I was two weeks old when I went to my first family camp, which a smaller and smaller amount of people are impressed with these days. Um, I remember once my siblings and I were playing outside, my parents were leading a board meeting, and they said, do not come in unless someone is bleeding or dying. My brother pelted my sister with a softball in the face, and she's like her nose is just bleeding she's screaming bloody murder and my brother and I are like wait so can we go in (laughs) is this is this enough blood um so my life has been church and some of those churches have felt like a comforting family people that stepped in and went to grandparents day with us at school or um, I took pictures with in my prom dress, and they came to my games. Um, I remember one pastor's appreciation month, the church cooked us supper every night of the month. And I thought, I will love Jesus forever if I keep getting all this pie. <laughs> like, <clears throat> this, this is the life for me right here, right? Churches that have just loved me. And I've been a part of churches where I've seen trauma and abuse happen. Churches where no matter what I felt stirring in my soul, I was never going to be able to have this title because I'm a woman. Churches where my body existed, either not to tempt men before I was married or to pleasure a man after I was married, but never for me never for my own enjoyment and delight. I've seen churches use the Bible as a weapon 
to hurt, to oppress, to keep out, and to exclude. And I've thought of walking away just so many times. I usually don't think a lot about my outfits. My daughters will tell you that. They like to pick outfits out for me, and I, that's great that they love to do that. But I knew exactly what I wanted to wear today when they said I was getting ordained. And it was this outfit, which I think we all agree, it's fly. Um, but I wore this outfit once before, and I was speaking at a conference um, about LGBTQ belonging in the church. And I entered this room with about 500 capacity, and it's packed. People are standing by the side um, to hear what I'm going to say about LGBTQ belonging. And I, I mean, I practiced for months in this room with no chairs, with like 10 people practiced. Um, and I give this talk, and I feel amazing. And afterwards, um, about 20 queer kids, high schoolers, sat around for an, over an hour just crying with each other. And it was like they began to see that they were not alone. Um, and I'm looking at these kids who experienced such relief being with each other. And it was one of the most sacred moments to this day that I've ever been a part of. And I left just on this high. And as soon as I walked out of the room, <clears throat> um, Immediately, I was told that some men had heard my talk and had significant issues with what I was saying. And I was brought into a room, and the leader of the conference, um, the leader of the denomination's youth sat down, and they began to interrogate me about what I could possibly intend with this talk. It went so far that they were attacking my character and who I was. And I'm crying. One of them said, I'm curious why you're crying. I want to be like, you idiot. It's because you're completely tearing me down. You're destroying the chance that these kids have to hear that God created them and loves them exactly as they are. And it got so far that actually it was just, it was a woman who had significantly less power than these men stood up and said, this is wrong, what we're doing right now, and this is inappropriate. And I got sent out of the room while they debated. They brought me back in, and they said, we're going to cancel your next session because the denomination's not ready to have this conversation. And I sobbed. I sobbed. I've thought of walking away so many times. But Jesus, Jesus has been it for me. Jesus has been hope when I've struggled to get out of bed because I'm so depressed. Jesus has been fire in my bones when I see marginalized people. Jesus has been warm to me. Jesus has been in every set of arms that I walk into this space and hug. And then who sit around my table and hear me say, I, I 
I don't believe the goodness of God today. I don't believe it today. And in the softness of the eyes of people in this church that have looked back for me and said, okay, we'll believe it for you today. And you can believe it for me tomorrow. Jesus has been it for me. And I just want to say what a gift you've given me to pastor and to lead, to show up exactly as God as God has made me from the time I was probably 10 years old. It's a gift a lot of women don't get in their church spaces, and I don't take it for granted that I get to show up that way for you. I take that responsibility seriously. I'm reading a book right now called, the tagline is, um, A Faith Our Kids Don't Have to Heal From. And that's the church I want to help create alongside you. A church that is a soft place to land for people who have been traumatized or abused by other, in the name of Jesus very often, who have been excluded. It's the kind of church I want to create with you for the heights. And I'm so thankful that you're letting me do it. Um, I'm so grateful for today. And I'm so regretting putting on mascara this morning. (laughs) But I'm very happy. For most of my life, I didn't think there would be an ordination day for me. So it is a gift. I'm very grateful for you. So this is one of the easiest decisions I've ever had to make as a as a pastor is ordaining you guys. But I have before we do it, I have a couple gifts for you. You can read the cards later. But this is for you, Nate. This is for you, Megan. If you guys want to open them up, show them what what they are. I think they're really important. Go for it. So Megan, I think you need a holy water flask. It's purely for holy water, so. Nate, you need an apron for your grilling. You guys, um, I am so excited for you guys to be pastors of this church. You guys have already been pastors of, of this church, but I'm excited to put a name on it. Um, but as I was praying, I was reminded of First Peter chapter 5, and I feel like this is a call for you guys this morning as we move forward. It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is what God is calling you guys to, to lead, to to guide, to shepherd, 
to not be afraid, to not uh, shy away from leading, but to, to step into authority, to stand in the gap, to be bold and courageous, but not in a way that dominates, and to not do it in a way that pushes others down but lifts them up, to serve our community. And I'm confident that that's what you guys will do because that's what you guys have always done. And I just encourage you to uh, keep on doing that. This week I wrote something for you guys, and it's, uh, I wrote it in a card in there, but I want to read it uh, just before everyone. It says, Nate, I was thinking about you a lot this week. I want you to know I am so impressed by your talents and giftings, but I'm more impressed with your character. I've watched you walk with incredible integrity through tremendous hard, tremendously hard situations. I've watched you make decisions that took such deep conviction and resolve that not many people I know would have made. Nate, as I think about you, I'm so impressed with how gifted you are. You are a gifted preacher, teacher, and pastor. You're honestly one of the most multi-gifted people I've ever met. But the more I get to know you, I believe you are a modern-day prophet. So often we think as prophets of prophets as people who see the future or who are able to do Christian mind reading, but a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God and calls people into his will, returning to him, and that's you. Prophets oftentimes have fans and they have critics. And so my call to you is to keep a sensitive and soft heart, to not let the critics harden you, do not let the fans praise you, but stay humble and continue to speak. Continue to fight for the marginalized and those who are marginalized. Keep fighting, uh, keep finding your identity in who Jesus says you are and not who your greatest fans or your greatest critics say you are. Megan, I recently told you that you may be the best preacher I've had the pleasure of knowing personally. And that wasn't just lip service. You have a way of challenging people and at the same time making them feel loved. A gift that very few people possess. And there's an authenticity about you, a realness and a vulnerability, and it's a superpower. It's not a weakness. It causes people to drop their guards and hear you and ultimately hear Jesus. And so my call to you is to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And as things get hard and even more confusing, don't lose sight. There will be times when it seems dark and you will have to scan the darkness to see the flicker of light, but keep scanning. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Keep challenging. Keep stepping on toes and stepping into the unknown. Keep calling people to gaze into the beautiful light of Jesus. And so, like I said, this is one of the easiest decisions I've ever had to make, and I look forward to many years working alongside you guys, and it's my joy to ordain you guys this morning.